0: Welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. We hope that today's message blesses your life. If you are interested in more of our content, you can visit us at cornerstonebv.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search Cornerstone BV. If you are currently subscribed to our podcast, please note that over the next two weeks, we will be transitioning to a new podcast stream. Just search for Cornerstone BV Media in the Apple Podcast. Now, here's another message from Cornerstone Church. Well, good evening, beloved. If you have your Bibles, let's open to Matthew se- uh, chapter 7. We're just looking at three verses tonight, verses 24, well, I guess four verses, 24 to 27. No one's eternal destiny comes as the result of uh, just a roll of the dice. It comes as the result of a relationship. And how we live our lives will reveal whether or not we are preparing wisely or foolishly for that eventuality that will come. And the difference lies in the parable that Jesus told here in Matthew 7. So let's read that, verse 24. uh, Notice that this says, therefore, that means everything in front of this, which is the entire Sermon on the Mount, I believe, is now being summed up right here in these few verses. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and it is falling now. And the floods came. Don't get worried. We have lifeboats in the back. No, we don't. But that's all right. Uh, and the floods came, <clears throat> and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, or and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We praise your word tonight. We pray that you will speak to us as a church and as individuals, your children, through this word, that we might grow up and be ready to meet Jesus. Over Thanksgiving weekend, we spent um, the time with our daughter who lives in Long Island. She lives in a little town called Copeg, which is between Amityville, which you probably have heard of, and Babylon, which I'm sure you've heard of if you've read the Bible. Well, in this area that she lives, it's very near the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, there are a number of inlets that come into uh, that area and houses that are built right next to those inlets and boats are docked you know, in the backyard sort of thing, and we were driving through one of those neighborhoods, really, really nice neighborhood, and I noticed that there looked like there were these homes that were set up um, on a really high foundation. I think I've got a picture here to show you one of them. That's, that's one that I, we saw, well, it's like ones that we saw. And, and we're driving around, we saw a few houses like that every now and then, and we're commenting, is that, like, you know, if you count those steps, there's 10 steps up to the front door, at a, what, a seven-inch or eight-inch riser? That's nearly six feet. And I'm thinking, why in the world would anybody put their front door six feet up off the ground? And then we realized Hurricane Sandy Hurricane Sandy blew through this area, and uh, you probably remember the devastation. It was it was terrible in New Jersey and, and in New York. Forty two people died in New York because of uh, because of the hurricane. In fact, uh, it was in, it was in October of 2012, and they called it the Frankenstorm. It was that awful and that terrible. It was a superstorm, 80 mile an hour winds, 13 foot waves that came over the coastline. And when we saw houses like this, I actually looked this house up. I was looking for one to find, and there it was, right on the front page. And and the the real real estate agent wrote a description of the house, and the first words that uh, the agent wrote were, um, raised after Sandy. So these people are getting ready for another one. Hurricane Sandy stands as a kind of modern-day parable for Jesus' parable here about the two home builders in Matthew 7. You know, last week, as Pastor Jamie was preaching through the parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew 25, he asked a really important question, and the question was, how should we prepare in order to meet the coming of the bridegroom, which which is the return of Christ? That's the focus of that particular parable. And the parable warns the listener about being alert and ready for Jesus return but now we're in a delay and there's been a delay for about 2,000 years now but the parable still calls for us to live wisely in the light of Christ's return and Jamie's plan was to come to this particular parable tonight at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about the two builders and you may wonder why what is the connection between Matthew 25 and in Matthew 7, and the answer is in the verbal connection, a very strong verbal connection, in the words that Jesus used that links these two parables. Uh, The themes here are about the wise and the foolish. There were wise virgins, foolish virgins, there's wise builders, there's foolish builders, so Jesus is using these images in both of the parables, and I believe that, that Jesus and Matthew both want us to connect what we read in Matthew 25 all the way back to Matthew seven and the entire Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at this parable of the two builders just a a little bit more in the larger context of this Sermon on the Mount, which begins in Matthew chapter five and goes through chapter seven. The Sermon on the Mount is to the New Testament what the law of Moses was to the Old Testament. In this story, you see Matthew portraying Jesus going up on a mount, sitting down, all of his disciples around him, and he begins to teach them. And he tells them, he tells them uh, right here in chapter 7, he tells them there's only one way into the kingdom, and it's a narrow way. It's a constricted way. You know, there's a broad way, but the, the king of the kingdom says that you must come on a narrow path. It seems terribly confining. It seems like the Broadway would accommodate so many more people. But Jesus says, no, you have to come into the kingdom without any baggage of conditions. In other words, you don't make conditions to come into the kingdom, the king sets the conditions. But once you get into that kingdom, there's tremendous joy on the other side of coming through. There is so much about the kingdom of God that Jesus teaches in these chapters that's just contrary to our natural way of thinking. You know, some things are just not easy. Some things are just not comfortable. Prayer is not easy. Fasting is not comfortable. Loving those who hate us seems impossible. But if we are willing to embrace wholeheartedly these truths, we would discover the greatest of joys. And that joy starts by becoming painfully aware of our spiritual poverty. You know, the opening line of the Sermon on the Mount says exactly what we need to hear. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't usually consider myself to be spiritually poor or meek I don't often hunger and thirst for righteousness. I know I'm not always merciful, but I sure know I always want mercy. And I may not say it out loud, but I'm not always pure of heart in all of my motives. I'm rarely a peacemaker. Sometimes I'm a peace faker. We certainly don't like being persecuted for Jesus' name. You know, it's really hard to meditate through Matthew 5 to 7 and feel somehow unfazed by the things that I read. There's insufficiencies all over the place in me. How about you? Jesus' sermon was actually meant to do this. It was meant to disrupt this complacent equilibrium uh, in us. Uh, and giving a crushing blow to our own self-righteousness. But on the other hand, the Sermon on the Mount is filled with offers of grace. Jesus follows up his high demands for the kingdom with an invitation to receive the pardon of mercy from God, to know the unchanging love of God, so that we might grow in devotion to God and personally conform to the norms of his kingdom. And that's the big theme That's on Jesus' mind when he comes to this little parable at the end of Matthew 7 and telling us there's only only two ways to prepare for the coming of the king. So whether he returns in our lifetime or he continues his delay and we die, every single one of us is going to meet the king. Are we ready? Are we prepared? How should we prepare? Well, let's take a closer look at the parable and see if we can understand Jesus' teaching about how to prepare ourselves to meet him. The parable is a call for decision. This is one of those parables where Jesus basically could say it. You have to make a decision. It's this way or it's this way. You decide. And so he gives the, the uh, challenge right up front. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now Jesus' audience knew a lot about needing to build buildings on a solid foundation. In his day, home builders had to dig down deep into the limestone bedrock that lay underneath the sandy topsoil of Israel. And like other, metap- uh, like other parables, this, this one has metaphors that point to the reality that is standing behind them. And the first metaphor is about these two houses. And we can assume there really isn't to be any distinguishing marks between the two houses. They're just two houses. They probably look a lot alike. They're probably both really attractive. Maybe they got fresh paint on them. They're well kept. From the outside, they just seem to be the same. We can't see what's underneath. We can't see what's inside. But we already know that one of them stands on a bedrock foundation, and that's the word that Matthew actually uses. And the other one stands on nothing more substantial than the shifting sands. On the surface, they both look equally strong. Now, everyone understands the importance, I think, of building on a solid foundation, our uh, construction company certainly did when they called the building engineers to come and look at our foundation underneath the fellowship hall over here to make sure that uh, it was sufficient to, to hold the structure that's rising, rising above it. And so they did some examination and here's, here's the pictures that uh, Jamie took this week for his sermon, so I decided I'd use them. After all, he went to a lot of work to go down there. So before, we could see that something needed to be done. And then after, something was done. And now we know that that foundation is going to um, hold up the structure that's above it. The metaphor that is standing behind a foundation is often used in Scripture to tell us something about God and our relationship with him. For example, probably one of the most important texts of the Old Testament in Isaiah 28, it says, therefore thus says the Lord God... Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Now, this verse from Isaiah is repeated several times in the New Testament. It's repeated in three of the four Gospels. It's repeated by Paul in the book of Acts in a sermon, and it's repeated uh, by... Uh, Paul, when he wrote Romans, it's also repeated by Peter himself. So this is a a very foundational text about who Jesus is in the Bible. And Jesus brings the point home when he defines that it's the fool. It's a fool. The fool is the kind of person who hears the things that Jesus says and then walks away and doesn't do anything with it, doesn't practice it, just ignores it. He says, I heard it. But doing what Jesus teaches is what makes the difference between a fool and a wise person. Now think about it. At first blush, no one would ever suspect there was a difference between those two houses or the two men who built them. Well, let's let's bring it forward into our day. No one would ever suspect the difference between two people who sit in the same pew, and when they're in the same worship service for years. They fellowship, when they had a fellowship hall, they had coffee together. They talked about God. They talked about the incarnation of Christ. They talked about his resurrection. They talked about the Bible and salvation. They probably talked about their favorite teams during a COVID-filled competition during this year. They affirmed the exact same truths about who Jesus is, his death, his resurrection, and his eventual return. But it's not until there's a life storm, like a tragedy, that reveals the difference between the two men. Remember what Jesus said the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat on the house. But the one on the bedrock, it didn't fall. But the one on the sand, it collapsed. And notice that Jesus said, the fall was great. There's something more going on in Jesus' emphasis of this text. One man believed intellectually things about Jesus. He nodded in agreement all about those things, but they never became a part of the fiber of his own being. The other man not only believed the same things, but he stood in them. He practiced them. He embraced them as a way of life. By the way, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the image of a storm uh, stands as a symbol of God's judgment, and I think that's what Jesus is pointing to here. That's why he says the fall was so great, and that's the main thrust of this parable. It's not so much how we live Uh, Through the storms of life, though that's important, and this text certainly can be applied to that. But it's more important that we are ready for the greatest storm that will ever come on this earth. You think COVID is bad? The storm that God will bring when Jesus comes won't even hold a candle to COVID. They all pale in comparison Uh, by the most significant of realities, Jesus' return. So how we prepare will determine the direction that our lives will take. If we prepare wisely, then our lives will follow that narrow path but produce tremendous joy. But if we foolishly ignore the preparation, our lives might follow whatever path we discern, whatever, whatever we think it might be, but it will end in a great fall. So that's why Jesus warns us to live like a wise builder, not a foolish builder, because our decision will have eternal significance. So let's answer that question right now. How do we prepare? What do we need to meet Jesus? And the answer is, we need to live according to God's wisdom about the way things really are. So I think this thing, this means we need two things to live wisely. First of all, the right foundation, because that's what Jesus is talking about, and the power to live that life as a disciple, getting ready to meet Jesus. So the foundation that we need. Are you all? Are you all? Like when you go to the beach and you have those, you know, uh, umbrellas, maybe those really big cabanas. They're kind of neat, right? How helpful and useful would they be in a hurricane? Not so much. So this this is exactly what we're talking about. The foundation that we have to have is one that we cannot build. We don't have anything that we can put into the place of that foundation. That foundation is too precious for any human being to create. The foundation can only be received as a gift. The foundation is all of grace because the foundation is Christ. He is the sure foundation for us. By his death, by his resurrection, he met the demands of the law and the demands of the the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, in a one-time, never-to-be-repeated supreme act of love. Through the cross, we are prepared by being pardoned from all our sin and the guilt and all of the shame of it. And then we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us to live that transformed life that God has designed us to live and to demonstrate his mercy, to demonstrate his pardon, to demonstrate the love of God and our devotion to him. Christ is the foundation that God offers everyone. Like Isaiah wrote, a cornerstone chosen and precious. This Christ has everything that we need to meet every storm in life, as well as to stand unashamed in the great final storm of his return. So we, we get three things here from this foundation. First of all, Christ is an unmovable foundation. That means that he won't ever leave you. He won't, he won't ever leave you when you fail in your life. He won't disown you when you're tempted to disown him. You may sin 10 times a day. What is it that Jesus said when Peter said, you know, should I forgive somebody up to seven times? And that would be pretty good, wouldn't it, Lord? I mean, that's, that's really pressing the mark, isn't it? And Jesus said, nah, try 70 times seven. One sin, one day. It just blew his mind. Well, if Jesus said that to Peter, how much more do you think Jesus is willing to forgive you of your sins in one day when you come to him and you ask him to forgive you? He is anxious to forgive. He never has to stir up forgiveness. It just sort of comes out of him naturally. After all, he's promised to finish what he started in you, right? Philippians 1.6 says, "Uh, I am sure that God who began a good work in you will carry it out and finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. That means he saved you when you barely understood what was going on. You had like no clue about what it meant to be a Christian, but he saved you anyway Regardless of the conditions under which you were saved, the reality is he saved you. And at that very moment, he went to work in you, transforming your life so that you would look less like the devil that you served and more like the Savior who saved you. You're God's building project. He's not a quitter. He's never going to be starry that he started you. You know, some mornings I wake up and I just think, oh, today, it's going to happen today. I'm going to hear from God. I'm going to open the Bible and I'm going to read this verse. Buchanan, you're a mess. I just, I'm I'm at wit's end. I'm done with you. I've never read that verse. Neither will you. Every time I read something in the Bible and I think he's done with me, I find out, he's not done with me. He saved me. He's got to finish this mess. He started it. He's got to finish it. Christ is also an unshakable foundation. You will never do anything that catches God by surprise. He is absolutely unsurprisable. For example, he knows what you're going to pray for even before you do. He'll never be surprised by your weak and waffling ways with him. Now, he'll shake things up a bit in our lives. He will do that, but he only does that because those things distract us from The deepest desires of our new identity in Christ, God's shaking is a sign of his constant love. He plans to come into our lives and do a thorough house cleaning, getting rid of all the junk that hinders our progress towards holiness. I think God is the ultimate 1-800-GOT-JUNK guy. He points at the junk and says, I'm going after this one. We don't have to point to the junk. We don't often point to the junk. I see the junk in the corner. I'm not going to look at it. So he goes over to the corner and he points at us and says, Bob, guess what? We're working on this now. Okay, let's go. And he rids us of the junk so that only the essential things remain, things like wholehearted devotion and desire for God, empowered by obedient joyfulness. And third, Christ is an unchanging foundation. Perhaps you've harbored some secret fear that you'd wake up one morning and you would discover that God changed all the rules about what it takes to please him. And he'll be like our friends who have to move the uh, uh, goalposts on us uh, when we want their approval. God God never moves the goalposts. They're always constant. The writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He is steady. He is steady in his love. He is steady about what he says about himself. It's always true. It's always honest. God never lies. And when he says that he has this amazing ability to take our sins and throw them into the sea of forgetfulness, how does God forget anything? I don't understand that, but I am glad that he does not change his mind about me. So ask yourself, if you have Christ... As your foundation the foundation on which your faith stands do you have him you have to have a person that's just, this is a relationship there's only two foundations available one of them finds favor acceptance and love with God and will never be taken away from you the other foundation the one that you make on your own or someone else makes for you or whatever however it comes into being will be shaken it can take everything away from you think about this death takes everything away from us everything the minute you die you owe nothing you have nothing there's only one thing that can't be taken away from the believer at death the love of God in Christ that constant goes with us right into eternity so how much, how much is all that other stuff really, really worth after all? No, I'm not saying, you know, we have to, you know, scale down and live in a monastery. I don't mean that. But I mean, we don't place that kind of eternal value on stuff that's not eternal. Because only the love of God is going to go with us the minute we take our last breath. And then we will see the love of God right there. Welcoming us. It's, it's just an amazing thought. So if that's you, if your foundation is anything but Christ, before this sermon is over, put your trust in him. So just, you, you have until the end of the sermon, and it's, it's at least an hour longer now. <laughs> I want to give you a grace here. God will give you an opportunity. Put your trust in Christ. And if you don't know how to do that, just ask Him, how do I do that? I believe God will come to you and answer your question. Now, what we also need is power. So we have this foundation, Christ, and we need power. He's the foundation who gives us the power. And the power is to live the life that we're called to. You see, salvation is not a static thing. It's like a one-and-done deal, like, you know, whatever. I I prayed a prayer one day and, you know, now it's over. No, salvation is bigger than that in the Bible. Salvation is what happened, it continues to happen, and it happens into the future. So it's all-encompassing about our whole entire lives and into eternity. And so it's not static, it expands. God's salvation in our lives expands through our lives with God's ongoing energy to give us the daily power and motivation in order to please the Lord, to obey Him, and and to do the good works that He has prepared for us to do. So we should never confuse these works that God has for us to do in any way with earning our salvation. No, our ability to please the Lord or to obey God or to do the things that Jesus says we are to do, that's grace. That's grace working in us in order to respond to the salvation that we have been given. That salvation is what makes us acceptable to God. So we're standing on a grace foundation. And when we stand there, we are free, not only to be hearers, but doers. That's what Jesus was saying in the parable. You hear it, and you don't practice it, and your life will explode when I return. But if you hear it, and you practice it, you're wise. So what does that look like? Well, at least two things came to mind. First of all, we're free to close the gap between the hearing and the doing. Now, if you've ever ever gone to London... And ridden in the tube, the subway, the underground there, you'll see signs everywhere. And as the train pulls into the platform, you'll also hear a voice saying, Mind the gap. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. And what the what what you're being alerted to is that there is a space between the edge of the platform and the train. And people can get their feet caught in that thing. They can trip. It can be dangerous. So they're told, mind the gap. You and I have a gap in us, even as believers, and that gap is between the hearing and the doing. Even though we are believers, we have these gaps in our lives, and they, they are uh, uh, dangerous to us because they can trip us up. The writer to the Hebrews put it this way, let us set aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, that's like saying, mind the gaps, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us by looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter or champion of our faith. Now, in my really honest moments, I realize I haven't arrived. I haven't arrived yet. There's gaps in my hearing and in my doing. But like Paul says, the practice of the believer and the power that the Spirit gives us enables us to press towards the goal of the high calling of becoming like Jesus. So to reach the goal means that we have to put in the effort to learn the ways of Christ's own life. Like Paul said in Ephesians, he said we have to learn Christ learning Christ's way of life is a more ambitious study than theology and physics and biology and history all combined. Christ is the goal of God's plan to gather everything in heaven and on earth in Christ. To learn Christ, we need to know how the scriptures are fit together and how they focus on him. While it means we we must learn healthy doctrine, the most important thing that we need to learn is how to read the Bible in light of the central message of the Bible, which is Christ himself. He's the message of the Bible, the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. is all about Christ's person and work as the king of the kingdom. He said as much himself uh, to the two very discouraged people, the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. So Jesus gave them a, a lecture from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. In their day, that was Malachi. And they said, man, when, when we heard him teaching us, boy, our hearts were burning with desire and gratitude and love and things that we, we thought we had lost. Listen, if we want sanity and stability and calm in our lives in the rest of 2020 and going into 2021, we can have that as we look to Jesus to get to know him more intimately and let him change us to be wholehearted, devoted followers. The Bible is so much more than a good book of advice. It's our GPS for living as Jesus' followers. We read it, and we should be avid daily readers of it, with a motive that says, you know what, I am thirsting for hope today. So I am coming near to hear what God has to say to me today. Or I am am really thirsty and hungry to live more righteously. So I'm coming to God's word today to increase my faith in areas where I doubt. Or I want want victory over this sin. It's just, I've had enough of it. It, it. It hangs on to me. I need more grace in this area of struggle. I'm hungry to see the glory of God in Christ, and so I'm coming to be changed by that glory into the likeness of Jesus. That's how we learn Christ. This is the life of a disciple, from the moment of conversion to the moment of meeting Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what can we say? We don't want to be fools, Lord. We want to be wise people. Wise people who build on the foundation of Christ, the stone that you laid in Zion, the precious cornerstone. I pray that you will help us in this very distracting crazy time that we're living in that we will dig down deep into your word and stand on the solid foundation of the person and the work of christ so that we might be free to love you more we pray this in jesus name And everybody said amen